CVC, I'm, I'm very grateful that you're here this morning. If you're a visitor, uh, this isn't uh, normal. We are grateful to have baptisms. We're grateful to gather to worship the Lord on the last day of the year, looking forward to another great year. Uh, but we also have something very special. Uh, Eric Morse grew up in our church, uh, and if you're saying to yourself, Morse, Morse, that name sounds familiar. Just look in the center, the entire center of the church. It's the Morse section. And uh, so Eric grew up in our church. He's been a pastor on staff at Fourth Memorial Church in Spokane for eight years. He's been married to his wife, Brooke, for eight years. They have three lovely daughters. Um, but Eric comes to us at a moment in time for him. He is embarking this year on what he believes God has called him to do, uh, and that is plant a church in the Spokane area. He's going to tell you a little bit about that. We believe that God has called him to do that, and so we have uh, put part of our missions budget towards supporting him and supporting that church. Uh, but this morning, Eric, he's going to come and minister the word to us. So welcome, Eric Morse. Thank you, Kevin. Um, and thank you, Community Bible Church. This is a church that I have only the deepest admiration for. I look out even now and see faces. I've already seen many of the faces here. Um, people who have encouraged me, discipled me, shepherded me, people that have spent hours upon hours talking about Christ with me um, and helping me to grow into the fullness of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. So this is a church that I deeply love, and I'm so excited to see um, the faithfulness of all of you here in this place to proclaim the Word of God and to be about His mission. So would you pray with me? Lord, we recognize this morning that each and everything we have is a gift from you. We recognize this morning, Lord, that we ourselves have very little to offer apart from you. And God, I pray that as we see your word this morning, that we read it, that we look at it, that we hear it, Lord, that we would internalize its beauty and its truths. Or would you speak to us through your word? Would you sharpen us? Would you build us up, Lord? And would you encourage us in the mission that you have called us as your church? In your name we pray. Amen. This morning we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. So I encourage you to turn there with me. Matthew chapter 5. We have a small section today. We're going to be just looking primarily at verses 13 through 16. And as you're turning there, I want to just propose something to all of us. That the Bible is the greatest thematic story that has ever been told. We see themes of good and evil, life and death, strength and weakness, holy and unholy. But there's one theme that roots deeper than most in Scripture. And it's the theme of light and darkness. In many regards, the Bible is a story of the despair of living in darkness and the joy of living in light. God has even ordered His creation to proclaim these truths and that every day we watch the sun go down and we experience the gloom of night to see the sun come up in the morning and experience the joy of day. Understanding darkness and light is key to understanding God Himself. 
And the biblical story begins with light and ends with light. In Genesis chapter 1, it says that the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters and God said what? Let there be light. And there was light and God saw the light and it was good and God separated the light from the darkness. But also at the very end of the book, this incredible book that we proclaim and believe, the very end of this book, we see also an incredible picture. It says this in Revelation 22, at the end of all things when all evil has been judged and God's holy people are gathered unto him. It says this, that no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. This book begins and ends with light. And who is the originator, the source, and the provision of that light? It's God. So let's look at our passage today, Matthew just verses 13 to 16 here. It's up on the screen. If that's easier for you. It says this, Jesus speaking, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 5, which many of you will recognize this is the Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus' first major proclamation and teaching. It's early on in his ministry, and there's something that's interesting about the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew's account of the Sermon on the Mount, it takes place immediately after he calls the disciples, and then it says he goes up onto a mount to proclaim the word. But also in Luke's gospel, he says this, that Jesus gathered his disciples close. And then he said, these things. And then it lists the Beatitudes and it lists this section. Meaning this, that there's a lot of thought on this, but the general consensus at this point is that the Sermon on the Mount begins with a message that's intimate and intended for only his disciples. Those that have chosen to follow him and identify themselves with him. And then as the Sermon on the Mount progresses at some point, it's up for debate, a lot of scholars talk about this, but at some point in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus expands the audience to everyone listening. Lots of people. But here's what I want you to know this morning, that in this section, in Matthew 5, 13 to 16, he's talking to his disciples. And he says this, that you are the light of the world. Before we talk about light, I want to just set the stage for darkness. Because light shining in the world supposes something, that there's a problem. 
And that problem is darkness. Four quick realities about the darkness of the world. First, darkness is the condition of the human heart. This is not a popular message. This is an anti-cultural message that our hearts are actually not worth following. That we shouldn't put all of our chips into whatever our heart says we should do. That instead we should see our hearts as dark and turn from that desire. Genesis 6, 5, the Lord is about to flood the earth and he makes, he makes this statement about the condition of the human heart. He says, he saw that the heart of man was only evil continually. That's redundancy for a reason. And then in Romans, we hear Paul using a very similar description of the human heart. He says that their foolish hearts were darkened. Meaning this, our hearts are dark. The condition of our hearts will lead us inevitably toward that which it is already predisposed, which is darkness. Like surrounds itself with like. And the Bible says our hearts are dark. And if we follow our hearts, we will end up in darkness. Secondly, darkness is debilitating and deadly. My friend Jordan is here. Two of my friends Jordan are here, but Jordan Brown is here. One of my good lifelong friends and when we were, uh, after high school, we decided, hey, let's go and do a, a camping and a hiking trip. We're going to go to the base of Mount McLaughlin nearby, and we're going to scale it. And it was a great trip. We had a lot of fun with another friend. And I remember, to this day, the first night we got there, it was overcast. There was no moon. There was no light whatsoever. We're camped out at the base of the mountain with absolutely no one around, no electricity, just nature and us. We lit this fire, and we stayed up around the fire for a while. Eventually said, okay, we got to go to bed because we got to hike tomorrow. So we went and we got in our tents and we put out the fire. And I remember, I literally remember Jordan flipping the last flashlight that was on off. I have never experienced more complete darkness than that moment. I had absolutely no idea where anybody was, what anything was. And it was only until we turned the flashlight on that we were like, oh man, I feel better now. It was terrifying. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation with complete darkness, but here's what I felt in that moment for the first time in my life when we turned off all the lights and there's absolutely nothing to see. There's no light. Here's what I felt. Debilitated. Those who walk in darkness, who live in that reality, are unable to avoid danger. If I were to go out, I could walk right into a nearby lake. No idea. Walk into a bear. I'd have no idea. Those who live in darkness are trapped. They have no hope of rescue. I don't know where to go. I don't know where to be. I don't know where to look. I can't see or know anything. Those who are trapped in darkness are ruled by fear. Let me tell you, that as we're laying there in the darkness, there's a few times we start like, do you think there's anything out there? <laughs> They're desperate for sight. And finally, those in the darkness are unable to rescue themselves or others. Third, darkness stems from godlessness. Culture, war, violence, addiction, rebellion, division, loneliness, pain, all things each of us have experienced here and are living in presently, likely. These are all extensions of the darkness of godlessness. If God himself is the light, all else is darkness. 
And finally, darkness is only driven away by one thing. And what is it? It's light. Only light can rescue a person from the endless prison of darkness. So now I want to move to four realities that we're going to see from our text this morning. Darkness is the problem that the world exists in this godless place where the heart is driving all behavior, driving all decisions, which we know is dark in and of itself. And this darkness leads to death. But here's the great thing about this story and this God. He plunges into the darkness to rescue his people. So we see in Matthew chapter 5, first, that the church is the light of Christ. The church is the light of Christ. There's this incredible statement in verse 14. He says these words, you are the light of the world. But I have a question for us. Maybe some of you have already thought this. I know I thought this when I studied this passage. Doesn't Jesus say that he is the light? How could he look at his disciples and say, you are the light? We know in John 8, verse 12, that he says this, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. So how could we be the light of the world if Jesus is the light of the world? Well, here's the most incredible piece of this entire reality. The Christian and the church in Christ, her Savior, are one. It's not that the church has some light that Jesus says, you have a light and you get to display it, and that's amazing, go do that. What Jesus is saying is, you are the light of the world. And don't forget, I gave you light. I am the light. The key to understanding what Jesus means when he says, you are the light of the world, is understanding what Jesus means when he says, I am the light of the world. Those saved by Christ are filled with his spirit, the spirit within us that shines the same light of the one who gave it to us. The church is the light of Christ. This is encouraging to us, I hope, because it graciously forces you and I to have to come back to the same thing over and over and over in life. And it's Jesus Christ. To know him, to seek him, to delight in him, to fixate my entire life, my heart, my desires, my thoughts, every part of who I am on Jesus as the only one that can truly give life or light. In church, we get to do this as the church. Which leads to the second point. The light of the church is distinct and prominent in a dark world. I want you to notice what Jesus says here. 
He says in verse 14, first, that you are the light of the world. We now understand that we are his light. But notice this, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. And here's this incredible picture that Jesus is using. He's using a, a technique of teaching, which he's portraying an image, does this a lot, and he attaches significance or meaning to those images that he wants his disciples to decipher and figure out. And sometimes Jesus, as you know, if you read the Gospels, sometimes he doesn't necessarily give them the full answer because he wants them to continue to work through it. But sometimes he just gives it to them and then says, here's what it is. And this is one of those situations for us, which is fantastic. Here's what he says. Two images. First, church, you are a city on a hill. But secondly, church, you are a light on a lampstand that lights up the whole room. And the reason he gives these two pictures is to convey specifically the fact that the church is distinct in its nature from the world. Let's jump back to point one for a second. Why? What would make the church distinct from the world? Because I know that if it's just left up to Eric, Eric needs to be distinct from the world. CBC needs to be distinct from the world. If it's just up to you and I, we are going to fail. And we're going to blend right back in with what the world does, which is seek the darkness. But what is it that makes us distinct, church? It's Christ, the light of the world. Jesus has always and will always be what makes the church distinct. The Son of God, who is alive forevermore. So we have two pictures, a city on a hill, which is more of the external witness of the church to the world. And then you have the lamp on a stand, which is more of the internal witness of the church to the world. Let's start first with the city on a hill. Notice the picture, city on a hill. Likely Jesus is he's, he's conjuring up images of Jerusalem, which is a literal city that is built on a hill. All the surrounding regions kind of looks up to Jerusalem. I long to go someday. Pete, I know how disappointed you are that I backed out of our last trip, and I will go someday. <laughs> but man, have I looked at the geography and the topology, I've looked at it, and it's true. From what I can tell, you look up to Jerusalem from all around. Likely, Jesus is conveying an image. Just as God's people were called to be Israel, called to be a light to the nations, he looks to his disciples and says, you are like a city, that atop a hill, visible, prominent, public, and everyone around can't help but look and see this city that's on top of this hill. It's an external witness. And he's actually conveying something that has a lot of weight to the disciples. That whether you like it or not, you are being watched and you are visible. Again, why? Because you are identified with me. And there's no person that shook the world more than Jesus Christ. City on a hill. And I want you to imagine in the darkness of night where the city is going to shine most prominently, when the lights go out, the city is lit in all of its splendor. And Christ is who makes her glorious. Jesus 
tells his disciples that you are the place where refuge can be found. That all of the surrounding darkness looks to the city on a hill and says, maybe we'll go there to find something. But then there's a second illustration he uses, and it's a lamp on a stand. Again, I'm going to read this for us. Verse 15, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. Now, I had the privilege um, just this early this year to go to Italy and to see the history of Italy and to see a lot of this incredible, rich tradition that's there and, and, and the art that's there. And we went through a number of museums. And let me tell you, it was fascinating. There are a number of museums that had what are called, they call, well, they're lampstands to us, but to them, they would have been called something different. About six foot high steel rods that on the bottom have feet. And about this high, about as high as I am, we saw them behind the glass panes. There's all these lampstands that are just lined up. And I was looking at all the little plaques. And you know what I was finding? Multiple of them were from the Roman Empire. I want you to imagine Jesus himself in that cultural context. He knows the images. He lives in the cultural world of the Roman Empire. And when he uses the picture of a lampstand here, he's literally referring to a reality of life in Rome. And here's one of those realities, that they would take one of these lampstands, about six feet tall, and they would often put it in the middle of the room. An average Roman house at that time was kind of like a big living room. It's like their whole house is a big square, at least for the common folk. So one giant room, if you will, and they put it in the middle, and they would take their lamp, which we saw hundreds of these behind the museum doors. They take a lamp, it looks a lot like a genie lamp, and they would fill it up with oil, except it's not made out of gold. And on the end would be the flame, and they would light the flame, the oil would run up, and now you've got a lamp. And they would take that, and they would put it on top of the lampstand in the middle of the house. Why? lights up the whole room. It's high up. It reflects down. The light goes, disperses everywhere. And notice what Jesus said. This is fascinating. No one would take, this is what he's saying, no one would take a lamp, light it, put it in the corner of a room, and then put, let's put a basket over it. Now does that seem more silly? This is what Jesus is saying. No. You're going to light the lamp, and you're going to put it up high, prominent, central, so that the whole house can see Notice the value of the lamp is what? He says that it would give light to all in the house. In other words, this is an internal, internal witness that Jesus is talking about. Meaning that church, we are called to live life together and to allow Christ to be the light within our midst And as we go to our workplaces, as we go to our homes, as we go to our families, as we go out into the marketplace, as it were, what do we do? We take the light of our fellowship with us, and we go. And then there's this incredible picture. That as we do this as a church... The light of Christ shines 
through the good news of the gospel and illuminates a path to enter the house of God safely where life and salvation are found. As the world associates with us both individually through personal connections that we have, but also collectively by coming to our worship service, which happens, they are made aware of the pathway to God, which means that we need to center our worship services. We got to center our conversations all around the grace of God, the gospel, Jesus Christ, who is Christ, the light of the world. When we bring people into our midst and they see our worship and they hear our preaching and they see the way we talk to one another, we encourage one another as the church, they should see Christ. This is the light that's on the lampstand. And I want to further convey the distinctiveness of the church in a dark world, which Jesus refers to as a city on a hill, separate from the world that's lighted up, but then also a lamp on a lampstand that lights up the darkness of the place where the people live. We're distinct from the world because of Christ, but there's also this incredible biblical picture that extends out from this passage. Notice these verses, Ephesians 5, 8, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are Light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Colossians 1.13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. 1 Peter 2.9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Meaning that we as the church, have been made completely different through Jesus. And that distinctiveness that we have received from our Savior, it goes with us everywhere we go. And the more we are distinct from the world, the more we live holy lives as pleasing unto Him, the more that Christ radiates from our fellowship. We must live holy lives as Christ himself. Our light is holy. How do we do this? We confess sin daily. We repent of self-rule daily. We believe in the love of Christ daily. We abide in his word daily. And we preach the gospel to ourselves daily. Third, the light of the church is a collective flame. This one, this one got me going earlier. The light of the church is a collective flame. I'm going to read the last verse here, verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others. And before we get to the so that, we're going to get to the so that. That's the, 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 the ribbon that ties us all together. Before we get there, I want to say this, read this one more time. In the same way, verse 16, let your light shine before others. I want to draw your attention to something that is incredibly important. Matthew 5, 13 to 16 is full of pronouns. You, 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 your, your, your. These pronouns are plural, which means that the grammar down south is actually spot on. You could translate these pronouns here as y'all. I spent a little time in the South, and it was astounding how much no one says y'all here, okay? But grammatically, 
I'm not going to make this complicated. I want it to be really simple. Grammatically, this is correct. Okay, so I'm going to reread this with the actual language that Jesus used, the plural pronouns here. Here's what he was saying. Y'all are the salt of the earth. Y'all are the light of the world. Y'all's light shines before others. Let that. So that they may see y'all's good works and give glory to y'all's Father who is in heaven. Now, I know I just made Jesus sound like he's from Alabama, but that is what he is saying. And if we are not careful, I lived many, many years of my life thinking Christianity was all about me. If we are not careful, we will read passages like this and say, I'm the light, I need to shine, I got this, and go. No doubt the individual light of Christ within us is important and it contributes. But I want to be really clear here. We cannot fully fulfill the mission to be the light of the world without the local church. There are a lot of Christians today that for whatever reason have given up on the local church. I've seen it. I've caused it. Hurts, offenses, hypocrisy, impatience, all quoted as reasons why I'm done with the church. There are too many Christians today who are running around with a figurative Zippo lighter thinking that this is my light, this is all the world needs. But forget the fact that the church is what fuels it. They also forget the fact that bringing their individual light into the collective body makes the flame shine all the brighter. The light of the church is a collective flame. In the Old Testament, this is an astounding verse. I hope you'll see this with me. In the Old Testament, God set up what's called the tabernacle for Israel to worship on the go. It's a tent where worship would take place and the priest would go in, the high priest, and he would administer worship on behalf of the people and for the people. And they would go into this tent, which is draped by like multiple layers. It's very dark on the inside. There's no way lights getting in there. Did you know that there's something in the temple? It's called a menorah. It was the lampstand. It had seven branches and they would light it. But here's what's so fascinating. The setup of the tabernacle the cleaning of the tabernacle, the transportation of the tabernacle, the sacrifices, the worship, all the things that happened in the tabernacle were given exclusively to two groups of people, the Levites and the priests. No one else could do it. It was a highly sanctified position, consecrated position. A lot of bars you got to cross and jump over to be a priest or a Levite. But here's what's so absolutely astounding. There is one duty of the tabernacle that is not the priests or Levites. It is the collective nation of Israel's. One in all of the Pentateuch. There's one. Do you know what it is? Exodus 27, 20. This is from the Lord. You shall command the people of Israel that they bring to you pure beaten olive oil for the light that a lamp may be regularly set up to burn. Did you hear that? One job of every person. They have to press, collect, and bring the oil that would light the lamp. I love God's word. It all connects. 
Church, we all, all contribute to the light of Christ shining in the local church. All of us. Invest in the local church. And today, here on a holiday, I know the vast majority of us are either members of CBC or attenders, or you, this is your body, this is your home church, I want to encourage you the same way I'm going to encourage others who may be traveling into town, that maybe this isn't your regular church. Or maybe you're in here today and you say, I'm just here because someone drugged me along. I, I don't have a local church. If you get nothing else from today, here's what I want you to get. Invest your life in the local church because it is the bride of Christ and it is the God-ordained means of advancing his kingdom and displaying his glory in the world. Serve your fellow member. Trust the leaders that God has put over you. Submit to one another. Love one another. Encourage one another. Participate in gatherings and worship together. Be the body of Jesus Christ here and everywhere. And then finally, the last, last point. The purpose of light is to deliver from darkness and unto God. Notice the last part here. Verse 16, same way let your light shine for others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The opening line of the Westminster Catechism is what? What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's it. That we would glorify God. And here's the beauty of this passage. That it says this, In Him was life, John 1, and that life was the light of men. Now listen to this, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. The gospel of Jesus Christ is such that it contains the only pathway to salvation, joy, and fulfillment in all of life. It is the utterly exclusive way to life in God as he has always designed. Meaning that as we shine the light of Christ, the local church, here's what Jesus says is going to happen. That people, they're going to see your quote-unquote good works, which I believe Jesus is a summary of what it means to shine the light. Well, we want to be the light of Christ here at CBC. We want to be the light of Christ as the church everywhere we go, everywhere we worship. What does that mean, Jesus? It means this, that you're going to participate in good works. Every merciful act of kindness toward the loss, every worshipful song sung, every Bible study held, every meal delivered to a member in need, every prayer prayed behalf on, of the saints, they all are good works that Jesus would affirm. And here's the whole picture of Matthew 5, 13 and 16. That as a group, the church participates in good works and the collective light of Christ is brightened. But I want to caution us quickly that as we do these things, we must remember that our good works, our holiness could never outshine the holiness of Christ. Rest in Him, knowing His holiness is both the power of your salvation and the power of your sanctification. We are regenerated by the work of Christ alone, 
and we are enabled to walk by the worship of Christ alone. Sanctification is just justification with legs. Know that you're saved. Know that you're covered by the blood of Christ. Know that you have been declared righteous and holy by the very holiness of Jesus and go forward in good works, empowered by Jesus and not by ourselves. Which is why 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6 says this, For God said, Let the light shine out of the darkness. That light is shown in our hearts to give the light of knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. As we shine His light, here's the promise from Christ Himself, church, that those who see the light and come into its midst, they will give glory to the Father who is in heaven. Which is Jesus' way of saying, acknowledging Him as Lord, glorifying God. There is no higher way to glorify God than to magnify His Son, Jesus Christ. The local church is Jesus' primary agent in advancing His kingdom and displaying His glory in the world. Let's be the light of Christ together, church. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this morning. I thank you that we get to have this incredible privilege of sharing your light with the world. And Jesus, I want to pray against any spirit of legalism here that may occur. Any unholy burdens, Lord, that people may feel. God, may we move forward, shining your light, only properly motivated by your love. And Lord, help us to always remember that there's no brighter light than yours. That we are to shine your light. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for this great privilege of being your city on a hill, your light on a lampstand. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Eric. Thank yeah. you for preaching the word to us. We appreciate yeah. it. Um, isn't it a great privilege to know that you are going to come to worship every Sunday and hear God's word preached? All right. I mentioned just briefly at the beginning that um, uh, we are partnering with Eric as of tomorrow, not, not today, but January 21st, 2024. Uh, we, um, a couple of years ago, we were looking for a youth pastor, and a number of us said to Eric, Eric, why don't you come back and be our youth pastor? Before we knew Eddie, okay, just a, no offense to Eddie, um, but Eric said, I've got something um, that I think God is calling me to on the horizon, and uh, that's going to come to fruition this year with the the planting of a church in Spokane. You're currently ministering in Spokane. You're planting a church in Spokane. And uh, as our elders heard more about that, we said, we want to be a part of that. So how can we be a part of that? This is a step in that is uh, bringing Eric back and having him show you that God has gifted him to go out and do this in the local church. Uh, but I'm going to ask you just take a couple more minutes. Um, just off the cuff, no, he, he prepared for this. You'll see. Um, and tell us about what's happening with, uh, with your church, with God's church, being planted in Spokane, fall of 2024. Uh, friends, we're, we're partners with this. So dial in right now and be ready. We're going to be praying for this church. We're going to be praying for Eric and his family and their team. And uh, so start making a prayer list right now. 
uh, about some of the things that Eric's going to share with us. Oh, I'm, I'm hooked. I forgot. Yeah. Jeez. <laughs> I couldn't forget. Yeah. So, by God's grace, um, this year uh, we will be planting a church in Spokane, as Kevin mentioned. The name of the church is Lampstand Gospel Church. Um, and what's so amazing about this, it's such a privilege, is to be sent by a local church. So the church that I've administered at for the last eight years is Fourth Memorial Church. It's a 120-plus-year-old church in Spokane, right next to Gonzaga. Um, and this church has, over the last eight years, gotten to know me. I've gotten to know them. I've served there. We've built incredible relationships. Ian, the senior pastor there, his name is Scott. We have an incredible rapport. Um, but I came to him uh, a little bit ago, about a year, almost two years ago now, and says, Scott, I feel a burden to plant a church. Um, I gave him all the reasons why, and we talked about it. I went to the elders, and it was one of the most powerful meetings of my life. The elders heard my conviction, affirmed it, and laid hands on me in prayer in that moment. It was unbelievable. And so we have the privilege of being sent by a local church that's doing a ton of heavy lifting to make it happen. Um, we already have currently 20 members that have gone through a process, a pretty rigorous process, to determine their fittedness uh, to be a part of the team. So my wife, me and my my wife and our children are going to be joined by about 20 other members from Fourth Memorial Church that have all sacrificially committed to go and to be part of this. Um, by God's grace, we will have four sitting elders from day one, which does not happen in church plants. The more I've talked, that is astounding and a major blessing that we have four qualified elders from day one and also a deacon family. So we have an incredible team prepared already and yeah, so uh, you can go to the next slide there. Lampstand Gospel Church, just want to quickly convey, why church plant? Why even do this? Well, the mandate is the Great Commission. Jesus says to go as the church, go and, and make disciples replicate itself through intentional disciple making and planting. Um, and also this, biblically healthy churches are God's primary means to making disciples of all nations, like we just talked about. Uh, you can go to the next slide. So the mandate is to go and the need, look at this, in 2014, an estimated 4,000 Protestant churches were planted in the U.S. while 3,700 closed. There's an even starker statistic back in 2007. 2019, oh, sorry, 2019 estimated 3,000 churches were started while 4,500 closed. That's pre-COVID. The numbers have gone almost completely bottom. The need. Research has shown that church plants are six to eight times more effective at reaching the lost and bringing about conversion growth in already established churches. That's Tim Keller. That was one of his stats that he came up with. Um, that's not to discourage local churches. It's just to say when you put new believers in a new area with an incredible mission, all these things, it's amazing what happens. Um, and then the need. The past five years, the greater Spokane area has had an average of roughly 9,000 net new residents. People are flooding to Spokane. On top of that, the real estate market is going crazy. Second largest growing real estate market in the nation last year. Pretty wild. So the need. 10% of the Spokane population attends an evangelical Protestant church on a Sunday morning. Churches are dying in Spokane, and not a lot of planting is happening. It's the opposite of what we want to see. So we feel conviction to plant a domestic church in Spokane that fulfills the Great Commission. Um, so that's the why. Uh, next slide is... This is a map, maybe hard to see, but this is a map of Spokane, if you will. The bottom part here where the green and yellow sections are, that's called the South Hill. It's one of the most old and historic parts of Spokane that was developed early, and now everyone's expanding elsewhere because there's tons of land. But the South Hill's been a little bit left behind. 
There are, um, in the zip code that we're planting down here in the yellow, there are roughly 13,000 households, and there's four main churches or faith, communities of faith that exist that the whole community, I've talked with them, they know of and are prominent. There is a United Methodist church. There is a Seventh-day church. There is an extremely Pentecostal, borderline cultish church. I went to one of the services and I had to leave. <laughs> and, and there is an Episcopal church. We want to partner as much as we can with these bodies. But there is no evangelical Protestant presence beyond those. 13,000 households. Uh, next slide. So here's some neighborhood artifacts. There's a big park right in the middle of the neighborhood that people love to congregate at. We plan on doing a lot of outreach there. Next one. Uh, Moran Prairie Grange. We wanted to rent this, but um, this is tragic. But there's a church that rented the Grange years past, and they left a really bad taste in their mouths. And so I've talked to these people multiple times, and we don't, we don't work with churches anymore. We're done with Christians. That's kind of what they said. So we want to redeem that image in the Grange's mind. Revel 77 Coffee, shout out, won Best Coffee in Washington two years ago. Take that, West Side. Okay, Revel 77. Next slide. Moran Prairie Elementary. This is one of the things that we were asking prayer for. We would love to rent this space. It's a huge elementary school right in the middle of the neighborhood. Everybody knows. Everyone's connected to it. It would be a fantastic outreach center as we get going. So be praying about that. We have not been able to work anything out with them yet. Southside Aquatic Center. It's an awesome state-of-the-art aquatic center right up there in the neighborhood. And then next, um, future YMCA site. This is the south area that we're going to be planting in. That red block is a giant agricultural farmland that somehow has, the farmer has kept through all of this. He just sold it and cashed out big time. YMCA bought it. That is going to be the second largest YMCA facility in the nation. And it's going to be done in the next five years. So there's a massive influx of people that are going to be happening in this area. So next slide. Um, cultural idols. Tim Keller talks about this. The gospel is supernatural versatility to address the particular hopes, fears, and idols of every culture and every person. We've done a great amount of work, me and a couple of the other guys, to be in the neighborhood, to get to know people, to figure these things out. And so these are the four big cultural idols that we have identified in this area. Security, comfort, independence, relativism. These are the things that stand in our way. But through the power of the gospel, we want to apply the love of Christ to bring about peace and heart and soul, spiritual fulfillment, community, fellowship, truth, and conviction, all in the name of Christ. All that to say, a transformed view of God is what we're shooting for. People are apathetic. I have personal connections in this neighborhood, relationships with people. I've had conversations. People are apathetic to God. They think God is incompetent, and they think he's non-existent. But we want to transform that view of God in the neighborhood by convincing people through the love of Christ that God's actually compassionate, he's capable, and he's present in your life, and push into that darkness with his light. Next slide. So, why Lambstand Gospel Church? You saw a little bit already, but also in the book of Revelation, it's written to seven local churches, the book of Revelation is. And at the very beginning of that letter, Jesus himself says, write a letter to the seven churches that are in Asia Minor. Meaning, each of the lampstands, there's seven of them in Revelation, they each signify a local church, which symbolizes a church has a light that they hold. And Christ even threatens the Ephesians, I'm going to take your lampstand out of its place if you don't repent. 
So each church is like a lampstand that holds up the light of Christ. Next slide. So this is our mission. Final slide. Here's our mission. Displaying the light of Christ for the glory of God and the good of all. Our prayer requests right now, first and foremost, is that people would come to know Christ. I truly mean that. Pray. For we are praying every day, me and my team, that people would come to know Jesus through this church plan. The more practical needs are we're looking for a building still. We're in communication with a couple different buildings to to rent. Um, We are putting an elder process together to qualify future elders and deacons to pray for that. We're also praying for connections in the neighborhood. We're going to be doing tons of outreach, walking through neighborhoods, prayer walking, getting to know people, to be praying for our outreach that's coming up. And then finally, if you could just pray for me and my wife. Um, We're already feeling the weight of this, and we're not even, we're still another six months out from even getting going. But just the weight of planting and the the weight of responsibility in this, we feel it. We're not numb to it. We are faith, um, we are, we are confident in God and we are trusting him daily. But would you pray for the strength of me as a father in the home, Brooke as a mom in the home, in our marriage and our parenting. Um, We feel we need to be strong um, and, and reliant on the Lord in our home to be able to do this task. So, those are our prayer requests. Thank you guys so much for being willing to pray and partner with us in more than more ways than just financial. So,